welcome back welcome back episode 20 of independent intel podcast i'm your usual host gambui bomani back again but this time doing it solo dolo last plethora episodes we've had on this podcast platform i've had a plenty of guests ranging from guys like off script light on sports um fellow podcast co fellow podcast creator himself and zay um, hoop analytic individuals that i will probably have on future episodes as we go deeper and deeper into the summer of sports in american society i just want to hop back on episode 20 to kind of pick back up where i somewhat left off in terms of talking about the nba playoffs and before i do just want to Give a huge shout out to everybody that's supporting me on Instagram at Intel Podcast. Um, I've been able to accumulate 400 followers in the past eight months. I might add, I started this process in November. I've been able to accumulate 400 followers in the span of December, January, February, March, April, May, June. So in a span of eight months, like I probably stated before, I've been able to get that following trying to close in on a thousand followers before the end of this year. That would be amazing. Create some amazing content in terms of <clears throat> summarizing the world of sports, went in depth on the draft before and after in the NFL world, um, kind of summarized analysis of individuals who advance in the NBA postseason picture. And so I'm just thankful for the plethora of supporters I've gotten from other pages that create sporting content on Instagram, from friends and family that have followed my content as well. I uh, just appreciate you guys being able to be a part of building the brand of independent Intel. Now, let's resume into the playoffs. Right now, the Denver Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns are currently playing in game four of the Western Conference semifinals. For the Suns, they're trying to go to the conference finals for the first time in over a decade as they're up 3-0 in their best of seven series. But before that, the world got to witness Brooklyn and more. In game four of the Eastern Conference semifinals. And the Bucks came back from a 0-2 hole to tie the series up at two apiece. And while they were able to do so, Brooklyn kind of let them not let them make it happen, but Brooklyn allowed the gates to open when Kyrie Irving went down with a sprained ankle. Um, right now, further MRI tests in the next two days will come to see if it's a severe injury. All signs point to it possibly being not as severe as they thought. Um, you wonder if the Nets are probably going to put James Harden on the clock as well in terms of maybe pushing him to be back in this series. But everybody's saying Kevin Durant is going to have to do it by himself. He's going to have to learn how to play without a super team. But in my honest opinion, I don't think he will be playing by his lonesome in game five. I'm pretty sure either Irving will come back in some capacity or Harden will. He's sitting Harden went out with the, with the pulled hamstring and he hasn't played in about almost a week. So we wouldn't be surprised if one of those two guys come back or if they both do. And we'll see how that goes for both parties. For Irving, it was crazy. Um, for the most part, he survived getting hurt, mainly because he took sabbaticals throughout the year, but freak injury where he twisted his ankle um, right when Giannis kind of came into his airspace to get a rebound. A lot of people on the internet thought it was intentional. I don't really think it was intentional. I think it was just Giannis trying to crash the glass Things happen in the sport of basketball. Irvin comes out and Durant on the fly kind of had to basically elevate his teammates on the Brooklyn Nets by his lonesome. And for the most part, he was erratic. 
at times he would make a tough contested jump shot for the most part his playmaking abilities were uh, below average grade um he was getting swarmed by multiple bucks bodies and for Brooklyn Nets team that a game prior was on the cusp of going up 3-0 when Durant missed a potential go-ahead shot at the buzzer they're now in the 2-2 dogfight and it's a best of three series the good news for both teams is this Brooklyn can take solace in the fact that Milwaukee really hasn't played that well um well, they play probably at their best in game four, but they haven't done anything that's deflating Brooklyn. Milwaukee took advantage of a depleted Brooklyn team in game four and beat them. And then in game three, Milwaukee utilized their utmost amount of energy and impact in the first half to kind of put themselves at a heightened distance from Brooklyn. And then once Brooklyn kind of got it themselves about their wits, Milwaukee was able to hold fort and contribute with some late game execution plays down the stretch to come away with a victory that included Drew Holiday's go-ahead game winning basket. So Nets can feel like, you know, Bucks did what they had to do, but while they did what they had to do, they locked up in game four because our best player got injured and it looks as if his injury isn't as severe. So we can expect to have him in the lineup as soon as possible. And in game three, they punched us in the mouth and we came right back. So Milwaukee can also feel like we faced adversity down 0-2, getting humiliated in Brooklyn, and then we came back, held serve on our home floor, and now we're in the best of three. This is the first adversity Brooklyn has faced in the playoffs. But it's an adversity that I think won't be superseded if two of their top three players aren't out there. If it's just Durant and the rest of the Brooklyn Nets cast, that's not going to be enough to beat the Bucs. But if the Nets can somehow have Harden or Irving back in the fold, recuperated from the injuries at somewhat a 70 to 75% clip, that's enough. They're going to have to win two of the next three games to get to the conference finals. It's a best of three. It's basically what both programs wanted. It's basically what both teams wanted, fan bases as well. So just can't wait to see where that goes from there. Now for the Bucs, what they've done all series, they've really done these past two games, is they've taken a extreme initiatives to make sure Giannis Antetokounmpo is on the move in terms of pick and roll action and post-ups and seals close to the basket where he's able to execute his point totals near the rim as possible to execute a higher percentage field goal opportunity. And it's something that you can appreciate. Now he's had his moments where he's come down and transition and take some weird three-point chances or in a half-court set where pounding the ball, pounding the air out of the basketball doesn't work in having a defense lean to its knee to his knees. He's having to settle for a jump shot from like 15 to 20 feet beyond the arc. I wouldn't really condone that, but for the most part, his initiative to be interior oriented has played huge wonders. And outside of a game two performance where he just was an extreme shell of himself, he's played well throughout this whole series. He's played well throughout this whole playoffs. And with the exception of game one against Miami and game two against Brooklyn, so as much as Giannis has been limited in terms of being an offensive fire keg, he's still been able to impact the game a multitude of ways by utilizing his strengths to his advantage. He's athletic, he's long, he's versatile, and he is strong. And I think that's the most underrated aspect about him as a player. People don't take into account how strong Giannis is. Although when you look at his frame, you think, oh, he's a 6'11". A slightly muscular but angular angular athletic player but no one takes into account that he's such a bully inside that he can utilize his strength to his advantage as well so 
you know, Buck fans, guys that picked the Bucks, Bucks and Six, they got a chance to make that into a reality. My only question for the Bucks is when they haven't been able to shoot the ball well in the playoffs, they are very prone to defeat. And they shot the ball unbelievably today in game four. Hit over 10 plus threes. And they basically had the Nets really bending to their will. There was a point where the Nets, were, I think, were up 11 in the second quarter. And, and Milwaukee goes in this crazy 20-plus run where they scored 20-plus points. And a lot of those were on immense three-point shot opportunities going in at a rapid rate. And so when they're shooting the ball in the lead clip, they're tough to beat. When they're not shooting the ball in a league clip, they don't really have an intricate way to get offense because outside of Giannis and maybe Chris Middleton when he's on, everybody else on the team is either effective from deep or not effective at all when it comes to offensive productivity within the half-court set. So that's just the reality that they're going to have to face and that they're going to have to surmise, can the Bucs have a game where they're not shooting well from the field and utilize their defense to their advantage? Their defense improved a lot. In game three and four, I think that's where they had to set the tone the most. Um, game four, it was swarming. And it's very easy, I think, to key on a guy like Durant when you don't have another guy you have to key in as well with Irving or Horton. So as long as they continue to play well as a playoff team defensively, the sky's the limit. And really for these for these Bucks, they're materializing into kind of the team everybody thought they would be in this series to where this series would be competitive like everybody predicted it would be and now you got a best of three but for the Bucks' sake I'm gonna be real they haven't really been able to be a fully healthy Brooklyn Nets team and I think for their sake to get to the conference finals they're probably gonna have to hope that this next team doesn't get healthy at the right time quick turnaround in a day's time I do expect Kyrie to probably be back and able to play in game four depending on how severe this ankle sprain is. If it's just a sprain where, you know, he can put some ice on it and operate to the point where he's somewhat effective, cool. If not, and Harden's able to go from his hamstring pull, that will be an effective resolution in its own right. But like this game is stated, game took a turn in the second. Milwaukee outscored Brooklyn 30-22. to They outscored him 20-21 in quarter three. And, you know, it's just one of those games where, you know, Milwaukee, they pounced when it came on that huge run in the second. And then they double pounced when it came to Irving bowing out late in the second quarter. So game change when Irving came out the lineup. And, you know, the Nets are a star Latin team. When the stars are out there, they're a tough out. Whether or not, they're very vulnerable to be. So for Milwaukee, continue to ratchet up the defensive intensity, continue to shoot the ball at a high-octane clip. And they should fare out A-OK. Now, the game last night, Utah and the Los Angeles Clippers, they played. And the Clippers, you know, accustomed to being down 0-2. They were down 0-2 against the Dallas Mavericks and were able to win that series in seven. Down 0-2 against the Utah Jazz. And they're at the precipice of tying it up 2-2. But in this series, kind of like the last series where they played against the Mavericks, there were just certain things that prevented them from getting victories, but it never felt like kind of how this Brooklyn Milwaukee series felt like, wow, these guys are down on two, but they're getting decimated. 
for the Clippers, it was like, all right, defensive intensity need to be picked up the last time they were down 0-2 against Dallas. Um, they needed to be able to knock down high-quality, wide-open shots from the three-point line, and they needed to defend the three-point line better on their end, and they'd be fine. They did that in really their next four, their next five games, and that's how they came out victors in seven. And this series in particular, yeah, defending the three-point shot was a requirement for sure. Um, being able to guard Donovan Mitchell better than they did the first two games in Salt Lake City was huge. Mitchell dominated early in the second half to help elevate the team to a game one win. And in game two, while he was just as effective, Jordan Clarkson's ability to put in that work off the bench was surprisingly proficient as well. But in both games, Paul George sucked. And they needed Paul George to play better. Like, it's really that simple. He did not shoot the ball very well. And he has a history of not shooting the ball well in Salt Lake City throughout his career. So it's not breaking news in terms of him not being able to shoot it at a proficient clip. But in their series against Utah and Salt Lake City, that's still going on right now. I don't want to refer to it as a series like <clears throat> it's not going on. He sucked. And his poor shooting outing hurt them in game one. Um, especially when he didn't go for that final shot where he finally got it going down the stretch in terms of making a three-point shot. And really, he was the only guy I felt like in the floor of the offense that was hot enough to probably take that last second three. Um, and, you know, he's at a point now where against Utah, I think it's, it's in his head in terms of being able to shoot the ball effectively in Salt Lake City. He doesn't shoot well in Utah. Um, he hasn't since Oklahoma City. And when you look at these numbers, you're appalling. 417 in game one, eight of 18 in game two. No, granted, he shot almost near 50% in game two, but he was two of six from deep and three of eight from deep in game one. And if you look at these losses that they had, lost by three and lost by six, if he makes three more shots in both of these games, they win. So his play is the reason why they're down 0 and he played a lot better in game four. Him and Kawhi both accomplished over 30-plus point performances. They were unbelievable from the field. George was unbelievable from distance. Hit six of his 10 threes. Shot over 50, shot, not over, but directly 50% from the field. He could do no wrong. They played phenomenal. That's how they got the victory. And I think moving forward for this team to be successful, they're going to need Paul George to play at an elite clip for this team to accomplish great things. Now, for the Utah Jazz, they've played phenomenal in these first two games. Phenomenal. But the guy that's really been able to hold it together for them has been Donovan Mitchell, who, after having a supreme outing in the bubble, he's a guy that you feel like, okay, when the chips fall away, man, could Donovan Mitchell translate this into a more playoff as atmosphere, you know, things like that. And for the most part, Mitchell has been kind of able to do so. Um, he was able to eclipse 40 in game one, I think 37 in game two. And in game three, he struggled early in the first, but he was able to put it all together and perform pretty well. But the team was in such a hole because L.A. couldn't miss from deep. And that's what all that's all she wrote. Now, the alarming issue with Mitchell is this. Game two, his ankle kind of got re-injured. And in game three, his ankle kind of got retweaked again. So you just wonder moving forward, can his ankle stand the test of time in this series? Mike Conley's already not playing with a hamstring. 
He hasn't played these first three games. I think I don't expect Mike Conley to probably come back until game five. And so if that burden has to heavily be on Mitchell's shoulders and he's already showing wear and tear on the tires, they're flubbed. They're kind of like Brooklyn. Like if they don't have at least one of their stars coinciding with Durant, they're not a threat to come out of the East. If Utah doesn't have Donovan Mitchell within their lineup to coincide with Gobert's defensive capabilities and pick and roll existence on the offensive possession with Bogdan Bogdanovich's three-point ability with Clarkson's gunner mentality off the bench as a six-man with Joe Ingles being a three-and-D guy, they're going to lose. It's that simple. And they've had a phenomenal run during this playoffs to where Utah is at the precipice of reaching a conference final for the first time since the 90s when Carmelo and John Stockton held it down for those Salt Lake demons. But, you know, we're going to see how it plays out for the Jazz moving forward. Donovan Mitchell is a phenomenal player. I felt like coming into the season after he signed his extension, he was signing himself into a no-win situation. I didn't feel like Utah had the keys to compete in the West. Even though they locked their team up, they locked a lot of guys up who are in their 30s. And we're kind of starting to see the wear and tear showing Conley. Haven't really seen him by Donovan. He's been able to stay healthy. Joe Ingles is cool. But I just feel like the roster that they have is full of elderly guys in the league. And with those elderly guys on the roster, your team's kind of at a tap ceiling because Salt Lake City is not a market people want to go to unless you, they're vets who are looking for a opportunity to get back into the league or – they're individuals that get overpaid. So for lack of better terms, Utah, they got to get it right in the draft and they got to make do what they have within their core. So that's kind of where they're at right now as a team. And that's just what the matter is. But, you know, when you look at Mitchell as a talent, he's unbelievable. He can shoot the ball very well. He could slash with the best of them. Great finishing ability around the basket. I think the two things that he needs to improve on is his defensive activity and capabilities. And it just improves as a playmaker. He's a phenomenal scorer, 45 in game one, 37 in game two. We know what he can do as a scorer, but impacting the game a multitude of ways is how he's going to elevate himself as a talent and then elevate his team as well. Devin Booker had to learn it the hard way. Phenomenal scorer, but we're really making anybody else better if you're, you're number chasing. Mitchell hired gun, a mid's player, but he has a selfish gene in him. And while his selfish gene has led Utah to the postseason, it hasn't led this team to long distance postseason success. And, you know, we'll see how this series plays out against the Clippers. If they bow out to the Clips, it's going to be tough because, look, this is the first time they've been the one seed in a minute, but it's how you lose optically that's going to at least raise some eyebrows. And I think the honus is going to be put on Mitchell to be better as a player for this team to propel itself towards prosperity moving forward. So that's really the biggest question. We look at a guy in Mitchell. He's a great player. He's going to impact the game a multitude of ways. But, you know, if his shot's not falling, he doesn't really impact the game elsewhere. And so with that in mind, you need to make sure he has a nice, solid team around him to where he can be productive. He had 30 last night. 11 to 24 shooting. Um, he did his thing. Joe Ingles had 19. Um, 
and Clarkson had 14 off the bench, but you know, they weren't stopping anybody. You know, you know, for the Clippers playoffs, their playoff run has been simple. When they don't outshoot opponents like they've accustomed to doing throughout the regular season, they let guys hang around and those guys beat them because down the stretch, the Clippers do struggle to execute against more complete teams because George at times shies away from the moment. Uh, Kawhi can become a black hole, which is cool when he's making shots, but when he's not, the others aren't really a viable option to fear defensively because you know they're not going to get the ball. And then as a unit team defensively wise, they get exposed a lot. George has lost his stuff as a two-way player. Kawhi is only one man, and then everybody else is kind of vulnerable to get caught in a lapse in judgment and give up a huge streak. But game four is huge for both teams. Um, I think outside of the series that we got in Denver and Phoenix, every series has a chance to be 2-2. And I expect the Clippers to tie it up against the Jazz. I, I think they have the Jazz kind of right where they want them. They're in a nice groove at their home court. I expect them to continue it in this series. And you know, Atlanta, Philly. I think Philly's found Philly's cracked the code against the Hawks. You know, after Trey Young did his thing in the first half of game one, they've put Ben Simmons on him and they've trapped him early and often at the top of the key. And while Trey Young's still going to get 20 plus points because he's a skill for score, they're taking away his ability to be a playmaker because they're preventing him from turning the corner in the lane. Once he doesn't turn the corner in the lane, he's not a factor. And that's all she wrote. So, excuse me, it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out in that series. But wouldn't be shocked if hmm, one, two, three, four series. Is it four series? Maybe you got two in the east, two in the west. So it would be three. My bad, three. A three series retired two, two. When it's all said and done. And that would be great for NBA basketball as all of these teams that are playing are going to have a chance to win their first NBA title in the 21st century. Some of these guys are having a chance to win their first NBA title. Ever, Utah's never won a championship. The Clippers have never won a championship. The Nets have never won a championship. So it's going to be amazing to see how that plays out. Also, Phoenix and Denver, they've never won titles as well. Now, want to address these awards that have happened recently. Nikola Jokic won the MVP. Rudy Gobert won Defensive Player of the Year. Tom Thibodeau won Coach of the Year. And Jordan Clarkson won Sixth Man of the Year. Uh, eventually, all NBA teams will be put out sometime this year, sometime during the postseason, so we get to see who made certain all NBA teams and whatnot. But these awards, not really surprised. You know, I had Thibodeau as my Coach of the Year all year, but I kind of figured, uh, you know, Monty Williams would have been an option because of how he elevated his son's team from being non-playoff contenders a year ago to a two seed in the tough west but i just feel like in my heart Thibodeau's success story with the knicks was more unreal because we kind of figured with the suns off of the momentum that they built in the bubble coming into this season with chris paul being acclimated to the team they're going to be a postseason team now granted i don't think any of us thought they'd be a two seed but i think we all felt there'd be a four they'd be a six seven max four or five minimum but the dominance that they've been able to have to be a two seed and really we're at the precipice of being one towards really the last weekend of the season they put in that work and it's phenomenal to see Monty do it 
finally get the point guard that he felt coincided with his team, really built upon the culture that he inseminated to Devin Booker, to DeAndre Ayton, to Mikael Bridges, got a glue guy in Jay Crowder, gave Cameron Payton the keys to the car for their second unit that no one else really was looking that campaign to ever do for their second unit. And it's paid extreme wonders. He made an impact against the Lakers, and he's made an impact against the Denver Nuggets so far in that playoff series. So kudos to Monty, but I just thought the Knicks situation was a lot more outstanding. You know, when we came out the All-Star break, they were 17 and 17, I think. They were like 500. And I saw their schedule coming out of the break, and I was like, there's no way they're really going to be able to make the playoffs. And they finished like 10 games above 500. And had some nice wins against the Clippers uh, and whatnot. So they did their thing. And Thibodeau was able to do it by making Julius Randle his best player. Continuing to instill confidence within R.J. Barrett's where he was a staple within their starting lineup. Got Derrick Rose, a cultural coincider in terms of being able to relate to Thibodeau and inseminate the message to the team. He helped elevate that basketball team after the trade deadline to an even outstanding team in the East. And we all thought they would beat the Hawks in the first round because their defensive productivity throughout the season. Nobody could guard Trey Young. If you can't neutralize Trey Young, you're not going to beat the Atlanta Hawks. Philly's been able to neutralize Trey Young after game one. They're up to one against the Atlanta Hawks. So it's just one of those things where tough ending, but Thibodeau did the the unfathomable because we already expected the Knicks to be a lottery team again. I expect them to compete for Kate Cunningham. And they're not being able to compete for Kate Cunningham. And they're finally building something. But now they're at a tough crossroads where they build something to where I think teams would wouldn't mind looking at New York as a possibility. The issue is they're in a bind. They have nice glue guys. I think can Barrett, I think Barrett just have to be more consistent with the three-point shot and get a right hand and he'll be okay. Mitchell Robinson just has to stay healthy and probably round out the rest of his game. So two nice young nucleuses there, but Julius Randle, great season, but he's probably an overachiever that is just reaching his prime. I don't know if you can continue to have him being your best player. Derrick Rose has been phenomenal, but I think he's at the latter stage of his career. And so with the next great success that they had last season, right, this season, I don't know if they could bring back that same roster next year and be effective. So they're going to have to make some immense roster changes that could continue to help this team build upon their success that they had this past postseason to be an even better team. Now, defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert, I don't really have a problem with it. I know a lot of people feel like Gobert didn't deserve it. Ben Simmons should have got it. That may be true, but you can also make a case Joel Embiid was just as dominant as a rim protector on that basketball team. Gobert is Utah's defense. Let's be real. When you look at Utah in its totality, they don't have great perimeter defenders. Royce O'Neal's cool. Joe Ingles is a nice little underground story from the outback known as Australia. But Donovan Mitchell's not a threat defensively. Mike Connolly isn't a menace at the point guard spot on the perimeter. Gobert is their defense. And as much as a liability is outside of the paint, within the paint, he's a menace. He's basically our centuries version of the Kimbe Mutombo. He's a three-time defensive player of the year. While I feel that Giannis probably should have won the Gobert second one, 
Gobert's that guy. Now, he's not the most skilled offensive player. He's not the most strong. He can be bullied underneath the basket against physical competition. But he's an immense rim protector that has held his own in a league where traditionally, those traditional statuesque seven-foot shot-blocking guys haven't really been able to make a living if your name isn't Serge Ibaka. Gobert has. And he gets a lot of credit for that. And so he deserves it. And I think with his third defensive player of the year, probably sets himself up to be a Hall of Famer because the impact and the presence he's had as a defensive nuisance within the league. And so I know looking at Gobert's contract, looking at Gobert's awards, looking at Gobert's standing within this team, you're thinking how in God's name is he giving all this credit for an individual that's not the most dominant offensive presence on the low post? It's what he's able to provide as a defensive individual that you can't deny, can't ever be understated. And as long as he's on the Utah Jazz with Donovan Mitchell, there'll always be a perennial playoff team with high marks offensively because of Mitchell's scoring capabilities and defensively because of Gobert's activity protecting the rim. Now, MVP, MVP, Nikola Jokic deserved it. And I think the turning point for, I think, the Nuggets and for Jokic's campaign to be a most valuable player was the team was 20 and 20, and they were struggling. And he elevated that team in the next 15 games through victorious stretches that I don't think people thought Denver could get. Everybody was saying they were missing. Is it Jeremy Grant? You're missing Jeremy Grant. Jerry and Grant. Jeremy Grant. Uh, who was phenomenal in the bubble. Jamal Murray wasn't playing at a particularly high clip. And Jokic was just dragging these guys along. And then once Murray got injured, Jokic picked it up even more, coincided with the hope of Michael Porter Jr. And here we are. I mean, he put up phenomenal numbers. And in a season where, you're right, we get it. Uh, Chris Paul did deserve his flowers. If Joel Embiid was healthy, he probably would have been the most valuable player because of his ability to be proactive on both ends of the floor. But Jokic played every game. <clears throat> excuse me, played 72 games, 26 points, 10 boards, 8 assists, and he dang near almost shot 50-49, but he shot 56 from the field, 38 from 386 from the line. Nicole is the truth. Now, he's not athletic, can't jump to save his life. He's not defending anyone, but he's polished, he's skilled, also was the latest draft pick ever to win the MVP. He was picked in the second round, 41st overall in 2014. I think that was the Giannis draft, I might add. So he's a phenomenal player. Phenomenal. And he deserved it. And this Nuggets team needed every bit of him. You don't see a lot of guys who lose an all-star caliber player really be able to finish the top three in their conference. And the Nuggets were. Lost an all-star caliber talent at Murray. They are able to finish top three because Nikola did his thing. And I feel like Denver finally allowed the office to run through Jokic more. In the past, I thought Murray was too much of the primary ball handler and decision maker. And I understand why, because they love the pick and roll action with Jokic and Murray, because of Murray's threat as a scorer and Jokic's threat as a scorer as well. But I think they were at their best when Jokic was the straw that stirred the drink offensively. And he had to be for this team to be successful. And it worked out for him immensely for him to be the most valuable player 
Now, rookie of the year is the only award that hasn't been shown yet. Uh, that, that's that's the only reward award reward award that we're waiting on. I'm assuming it might. That's a close one. It could go to Lamelo Ball. It could, but it also could go to Anthony Edwards. Tyrese Halliburton's up there. Now, I want to apologize to Anthony Edwards. I was sleeping on you, bro. I thought you'd be another Dion Waiters because of your inability to be a consistent jump shooter. More athletic than Dion Waiters. More of a lethal scorer than Dion Waiters. He's phenomenal. The issue is, what is Minnesota building moving forward? Do I have a new head coach? Interesting to see what he's able to establish within the culture. They are technically in the running to get a potential top pick, but I don't think that's going to happen considering the fact that they spent a lot of time and energy trying to have D'Angelo Russell get acclimated within the team. That might work at best for them. I don't think they really need another guy to come into that team that's a number one pick. You got Russell, you got Edwards, you got Towns. That's a nice core. Granted, K Cunningham wouldn't hurt. Um, it would probably make this team an instant playoff team, but you have your young nucleus. You just need a coach to, to present a new identity. Let's see how everything rocks. But for LaMelo and Tyrese Halliburton, I was high on those guys. I thought Ball was the best player in the draft, and he proved it this year when everybody saw his shot could translate to the pro level. And he could finish around the basket a lot more craftily. Craft, craft. He could finish around the basket with a lot more craft and nuance and depth than I think people gave him credit for. Then Tyrese Halliburton, everybody was like, he's good. But the shot, though, he basically gave me an SGA-type presence within his rookie. It was even better than SGA. It's unfortunate that he went out with the injury because I feel like if he didn't get hurt, he would have been their lead guard when De'Aaron Fox went out with COVID, and that could have helped the Kings play off push because they were one of those last-tier teams with San Antonio trying to compete for a postseason spot. Like all of them, the draft that they were in last year's draft, I think has a chance to be one of the more impressive drafts if we look back on it. Interesting to see how Wiseman is able to put it all together. But the top three guys, Ball, Edwards, Wiseman, Two of the top three guys in ball Edwards, they can play. We saw early. Halliburton, who everybody was high on as a hidden gym, can play. So there's guys with immense talent within their draft that can get down and get it going with the best of them. So I'm just interested to see how they're all able to put it together as they get deeper and deeper into the rookie contracts. And, you know, I feel like Kings and the Wolves, they have the talent in the next two to three years to be building into a playoff team. Let's see if they can put it all together. And Wiseman, in the case, we'll just see. Right now, I don't think the Warriors are really rocking with him like that as a cultural figure. But only time will tell, and it'll be interesting to see how he's going to be able to put it all together. Now, basketball tip is what it is. I want to kind of go on to a football tip before we're able to die down or dial down, I might add, on this episode. On the NFL, is the NFL. I mean, we've been through a lot, you know, lately in terms of the draft, um, in terms of guys being able to change numbers, single-digit numbers or a thing now. And you have a lot of teams that are kind of being advertised across the, the spectrum as we head into the training camp aspect of pro football. We're finally going to have preseason again. And so there are a plethora of things I kind of want to touch base on that I'm kind of interested to see manifest itself as we head into the precipice of the new NFL season. Well, 
many teams and stadiums will be at full capacity. Not all, many. So that home field advantage will be prevalent. I want to touch base on the Chicago Bears. Um, remember when Andy Dawn was their guy and everybody was like, oh, my goodness, Andy Dawn's going to be their quarterback. The Bears are destined for nothingness. They were able to get Justin Fields by trading up. And he's impressed so much in mini camp, rookie camp, that the Bears are like, hmm, we have a competition here. And I expect Justin Fields to win it and probably be the starter week one. Now, Fields, I was not a huge fan of Fields after his first year at Ohio State. But his second year, I was sold. He showed a lot of improvement. I don't know if it was just familiarity that he gained with the offense, things like that. But he showed a lot of improvement in terms of his accuracy and anticipation. But two poor games, I think, highlighted his deficiencies more so to guys than his proficiencies, which allowed him to slip in the draft. But I also want to take into account that he played poor during those times where, especially in the, in the, in the Big Ten Championship, he had a messed up hand. He played through a lot of injuries. Um, he was tough as nails as he come, but showed immense promise against Clemson in the semifinal. And then held his own against Alabama in the natty. You know, Justin Fields can play. He was the second best quarterback in his class coming out of high school. And the guy that was number one was Trevor Lawrence. So he automatically comes in and is the most talented quarterback Chicago's had in franchise history. And for the Bears, they've been a quarterback away for the past few years. They finally got one. They've held down the fort in terms of keeping their core pieces within their defense and offense. So I expect this team to take a nuclear leap and probably even compete for a postseason spot. I would not be surprised. Now, in that same division, the Green Bay Packer debacle continues. Jordan Love, he's practiced twice. First time he practiced in preparation for 2021, he was unimpressive. Second time he practiced, he was very impressive. Gives me shades of not just what Patrick Mahomes was behind the scenes in Kansas City, but other young quarterbacks that are immensely talented. A lot of guys were like, oh, he's struggling, and then he's able to put it all together. And completion. I was high on Jordan Love when he came out of Utah State. Still, I'm high on him now. And I feel like Green Bay, if the issue between you and Rodgers is going to come to a point where he doesn't show up for – training camp and eventually comes out and says with his own chest I don't want to be here anymore you have I think the talent at quarterback with love and the resources around him to go forward and I think at least be competitive in the NFC as love grows into his own player the fact of the matter is yes Chicago has Justin Fields that's all I'm going to make them better Um, yes the Vikings have a, arguably, in my opinion, the best receiving duo in football in Thielen and Jefferson. Dalvin Cook, when healthy, is a top five running back. They've improved their offensive line, and defensively, they can only get better after their young pieces have gained experience and acclimated to Mike Zimmer's defensive scheme. The thing is, Minnesota still has Kirk Cousins, and the Chicago Bears are sadly still the Chicago Bears. So, Green Bay. They'll be different at quarterback, and because of that, they might not win as many games. But I even think with Jordan Love on the roster as their starter, they're probably still the most complete slash talented team in the NFC North. So it's going to be interesting to see how upper management in Green Bay plays this situation out. Do they look at it as, you know what, we like what Jordan Love has brought to the table in camp to where we're comfortable with rolling with him moving forward as our guy, and we'll just ship Rodgers for the utmost amount of draft capital we can get? Or did it continue to cater to Rodgers' ego 
and tell them, you know what, we're going to rock with you for one more year. And then after this season's over, we'll get you in the best situation possible. I honestly think the ball is in Green Bay's court. So if they still want Rodgers to be here, yes, continue to give Jordan Love as much reps as possible to prepare him for a future where he will be the guy. Because I don't think after this season, if they decide to keep Rodgers, Love is going to not play and be the starter. I think the intention for Love, I think, was always sit two years and then be the guy. Now, we haven't seen guys picked in the first round sit for more than a year. You haven't seen that. I think the longest we've seen has been Mahomes. He sat a year. We haven't seen a guy sit two. Rodgers sat three, I think, when the Packers took him in 05. Those days of quarterback sitting two to three years, they're over. But this situation is rare because Rodgers is coming off of a MVP season. But the fact of the matter is you're sealing with him as the guy has tapped out. He made the NFC Championship game and two of the last three years, and you haven't won them. So roll with the young guy, in my opinion. With the young guy on a rookie deal, you're able to build a more complete competitive team around him. And that squad, I think, with a lot, with a little bit more fillers at positions of need, the cornerback two position, maybe another pass rusher to support Darius Smith, maybe added online depth. Corey Lindsey's not there in the pitch anymore. Finally getting that elusive number two wide receiver that they haven't been able to nab for the past four years. You're able to meet those needs, and now you're competing for a Super Bowl that you haven't really been able to do so with in the big game because all your capital is going to a guy in Rodgers who can't elevate the team over the top like he used to. So that's just the reality of it all. Interesting to see how that plays out in the NFL. That should be intriguing itself. Oh, one more thing. I want to touch base on the Jacksonville Jaguars situation with Tim Tebow. It's been a situation that was prominent the past few weeks. Not as prominent anymore. I think after Brandon Jacobs trolled, it was like, yo, if Tebow can play tight end, I want to come back and be a D lineman. Look, man, I'm just going to be honest with it. And I think a lot of people need to hear this on both sides. We have a lot of black players within the league that look at the signing of Tebow as white privilege. Um, and then you have a lot of white guys who look at the Tebow situation. It's not white privilege and just a way for black people to race bait and talk about race when it's not about race. Honestly, and also that white audience has found a creative way to incorporate Colin Kaepernick in this situation when I don't really think he needs to be there. But it, that was incorporated because an NFL player, I can't really think of him at the top of his head. Oh, Devin Bush incorporated Kaepernick which I don't think Kaepernick really need to be incorporated in this situation. The bottom line is this. Tim Tebow has something that Colin Kaepernick doesn't have. He has a guy within the league that is going to vouch for him to get a chance because that guy that's within the league used to coach Tim Tebow in college when he was the Don, El Don Capitan. Urban Meyer, the head coach of the Jaguars. Tim Tebow has connections. He has connections. And I'm not going to fault Tebow for utilizing his connection within the league to have a chance to achieve his NFL dream. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fault him, bro. It's not his fault that he has connections. Um, if anything, uh, Urban Myers, the guy that made this stuff happen, not Tebow. Tebow can desire whatever he wants, but if a guy like Urban Meyer doesn't co-sign it to the owner who doesn't also co-sign it, it this doesn't happen. The owner, Shaka Khan, the coach, Urban Meyer, did it. I think to further propel season tickets within Jacksonville. And I also think to appease Urban, 
I think maybe people might not realize an under the table agreement might have been between Clown and Urban is, you know what? You have utmost control over what you want within this roster. Whatever decision you decide to sign off on, I'm going to promote it to the audience as the second coming of Bill Belichick finding a diamond in the rough. Who knows? I mean, so I think people just need to understand that also individuals incorporating Kaepernick within the situation need to be honest with themselves. Kaepernick didn't have a connect. Never did. Also, people love to say this. Kaepernick passed up money to play. in. The, I'm like, he did not pass up money, bro, to play in the NFL. He didn't pass up a $10 million contract. That's what people saying. The only leagues that offered him substantial amount of money to play because everything else was a, was a it was an illusion. It was talked about in public eye as hearsay. Like I heard he was offered this amount. The only tangible amount that was offered from a league was the AEF and the CFL. That's it. I mean that that's that's it, man. That was the only two teams that offered him anything like that. No one else did. So when I hear people be like, the NFL offered Kaepernick uh back uh, an eight to ten million dollar contract i'm like they really didn't bro only only leagues that did were leagues that aren't in the nfl and he wanted more than that because he's like i played in the nfl so if you want me to play in a league that's in essence worse than the nfl after my last season in the nfl i was top five in quarterback ratio when it came to touchdown interceptions then you're gonna have to pay me starting quarterback money in NFL within your league, they said, nah, I know your worth. Like, I'm not, we're in a capitalistic society where the big wigs know their worth and they know how to negotiate with the best of them behind the scenes that the public eye don't know. So when you have a guy like Cap who has the equity, the career, the branding, not just on the field, but beyond it to be like, okay, give me this and I'll come. And they don't, I'm not going to blame him, especially if it's negotiations within a league that's not the NFL. I don't care what anybody says. Kaepernick was not that trash. As a matter of fact, Kaepernick was an above-average quarterback. Now, I'm not out here saying he was top 15, top 5, top 10, but he's dang sure better than Wayne Gabbert. And he's dang sure better than Nathan Peterman, who, last time I checked, still have jobs within the league. So, you know, Tebow, kudos to you. Keep getting them checks. He'll probably make the team. He'll probably come off the bench as a special teamer. He'll probably be in some goal line packages where he's throwing the football to maybe Trevor Lawrence or Trevor Lawrence is throwing the ball to him. So I wouldn't be supremely shocked. Tebow's going to make his money. He's going to be there. Dollar general version of Taysom Hill. And we'll kind of see where that goes moving forward. And with that, this is episode 20 of the Independent Intel Podcast. It's a short one. I might add, I'll be back next week with a guest. More than likely, I want to thank guys for being able to do, build upon my following on Instagram. Follow me on at Intel Podcast on Instagram as well. I'm going to continue to produce content. As soon as these Eastern Conference and Western Conference semifinals come to a conclusion, I'll make recaps about that on my IG page, as well as allude to some things that I'll be looking forward to in the training camp world known as the NFL. But without further ado, hope you guys enjoyed this solo dolo pod. Yep, brings me back to the early days in the Intel podcast. And I'll see you guys next week.
Peace.